0: Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. So news directors would send me stories and send me
1: raw video and say, how else could this story have been told? In a couple of cases we took fabulous stories and we deconstructed them and made them sort of ordinary and said look what this journalist did to make it so great right so it was really we called it before and after clever title but essentially we had a one version and a second version and we very clearly showed what changes we had made and how we thought this story could have been told more faith.
0: Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell. Here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it. And uh, in studio today with me is Deborah Potter, the executive director of NewsLab. Welcome, Deborah. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we met for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you had found out that I'd written a book about podcasting, which is coming out later this year, and uh, I talked about the fact that I had a podcast. You were interested in both. So you came into the studio. We're just going to sort of talk about the News Lab. You're going to ask me a few questions about the podcast and the book, and somehow we'll both be happy with that, I guess. Works for me. Okay, cool. So first of all, now you said that you, before we turn on the mics, that you were at the, you've been at the News Lab for, pardon me, News Lab, there's no the, uh, for 20 years. Tell me how, you know, what led up to that and sort of the history of News Lab.
1: So my own personal background is, is as a working journalist. I spent most of my career at CBS News, did radio and television there. And in the mid-90s, I left network television. I had wor- worked for CNN at that point and then decided I was interested in teaching. So I did a year at American University teaching, and I was recruited from there to go to the Pointer Institute, which is in Florida, School for Journalists where I worked for three years, and then I was sort of recruited again to launch a project, which at the time was a one-year, let's-see-what-happens project, funded by the Park Foundation. And the goal was to figure out something, some kind of project to help local television do a better job of covering important stories. With a one-year grant, we kind of launched this thing we called News Lab, and then they funded it for several more years after that. And when that funding ran out, we sort of developed a following. We had a bunch of resources we didn't want to let go of. And so I decided to sort of take it, you know, into my own back pocket, if you will, and kept it going
0: now for a total of 20 years. So what's been the challenge of of doing that? Well,
1: do you mean like making a living or? (laughs) Well, we're journalists. We all know about that. But yeah,
0: (laughs) you know, obviously, there's certainly plenty of things to cover and to do you know, produce content around, but had you had any experience in doing something like this before? Well, I mean, I'd I'd worked with working journalists, obviously, as a
1: trainer, a teacher through the Pointer Institute. So this was kind of an extension of that. And what we did when we first started was a series of seminars we did, you know, sort of people came to Washington and we had groups come and work on projects with us. And we did a couple of projects where we focused on specific ways that television news could tell interesting stories that were also important by looking at examples of stories that they had done and kind of reworking them. So news directors would send me stories and send me raw video and say, how else could this story have been told? In a couple of cases, we took fabulous stories and we deconstructed them and made them sort of ordinary and said, look what this journalist did to make it so great, right? So it was really, we called it before and after clever title, but essentially we had a one version and a second version, and we very clearly showed what changes we had made and how we thought this story could have been told more effectively.
0: Now, are there lessons, I mean, have the lessons changed over the years, or are they all sort of pretty much the same sort of storytelling issues that we always deal with?
1: Well, I think they have changed only because we now have different media that we also have to feed. So I no longer focus exclusively on television. I'm doing a lot of stuff with digital media and how you can tell stories on different platforms differently. And you should because they really are different. When the sort of the new media, as it was once called, first started out, the idea was that you could just take the same story and, and essentially present it on these different platforms. And it wouldn't be all that different, right? You know, you change... S O T colon to you know comma said you know and you just take your script and you sort of make it you know print worthy and that it would go on on the web. Well, that's I hope not what we're doing anymore. I surely hope people aren't. These platforms are different and they, the stories need to be told differently. So that's part of what I do along the way. I wrote a textbook It's now in its third edition. Um, which is called Advancing the Story. And when it first started, three editions ago, it was broadcast journalism in a multimedia world, and now it's just journalism in a multimedia world.
0: And it's funny how long that, that it's sort of taken for people to sort of realize and embrace that. And they're still learning to, to realize and embrace that. that it's because
1: it's a lot of work.
0: It is. It's more work. Well, yeah. I mean, the first time I worked on a website or at a newspaper that had a website, it was really just, you know, after you've, you know, Edited everything and everything's in the paper and everything, then you go ahead and you post it online. Right. And uh, like it was the archive. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's how it was. And that was how it was perceived. And for the longest time, you know, I worked for a a chain of um, weekly newspapers. And for the longest time, it was that's how it was. It was like week from week to week. And it, it was actually for in things, you know, with our big news stories and also sports, you know, sports in particular was where we saw that a lot. You know, if you get a weekly paper, and you're doing sports, the sports reporters were saying, you know, we've got to be updating and posting because, you know, posting a, a story on Thursday about last Friday's basketball game is ridiculous mm-hmm. because nobody's going to read it and you're behind. So you have to figure out a way to get ahead of it. And so, yeah, I'll let the sports people do that. And so suddenly it became a much more dynamic thing in our news process. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that was sort of an exciting thing to see as you know, journalism was, was evolving and is still evolving around that. You know, now I work at a, a website that's, you know, all digital, but, you know, we still face all those challenges of trying to tell stories in different ways. It's true. And, and I think that
1: we keep learning as we, as the capacities change, when, you know, sort of the idea of doing sort of multimedia online first started, you know, we were advising people to you know, be very careful with video because, you know, you can't tax these pipes too much, you know, it it won't roll smoothly. Well, now everybody's got, you know, HD video in their pocket. So it's, it's changed a lot in terms of what the capacity is. And therefore, the ways you're going to tell a story have also changed.
0: Yeah. Are you primarily teaching journalists? Right now, you're primarily teaching journalists.
1: Yeah, I primarily work with working journalists. And what I do is I'll go to a newsroom, for example, and do a workshop, or I'll, Go to a newsroom, and they'll have me work with a few individuals in that newsroom, or I'll go to a journalism conference, often state broadcast associations. I'll come in and do a day with them. So it's that kind of
0: teaching. Are you seeing the same sort of problems newsroom to newsroom, or does it does each one have their own sort of unique issue?
1: Both. I mean, I think there are common issues that a lot of journalists and newsrooms are are fighting, dealing with, and then each one often has its own little particularities that are fascinating. But what I will say is that you know, over all the years, 20 years, and you asked me, am I teaching the same stuff? And I kind of said, yes and no. The yes part is that writing is still huge. You know, I still go into newsrooms and do writing workshops. No matter how long we do this, there are still ways to improve your writing. And so that's been a passion of mine since I was a working journalist myself. And that's one of those topics that never gets old.
0: Yeah, I know that's that's one of those things that we touch on every once in a while. We'll get somebody in who's a a long form writer and he'll come in and he or she'll come in and talk about that. And it's something that will get a real positive response back that there is, you know, that's one of those skills. It's such a basic skill. You figure oh, you know, everybody's on top of it. Everybody understands it. But man, that's, that's at the core of so much of what we do and, in, in just organizing our thoughts and pulling together a reporting in really smart and cohesive ways and being able to tell those stories Across platforms, you know, it's so easy to get kind of caught up in the the technology of it. And not realizing at the at the end of the day, you're still going to be a storyteller, no matter what what medium you're in.
1: That's exactly right.
0: That can be tough sometimes. So you said you wrote a textbook. I wrote. I just wrote a textbook. You're in a third edition. I have my, my first one hasn't come out in a while. Had you written books before that, or was that was your?
1: No, it's probably the longest thing I've ever done, and I probably got through it because I have a co-author. So I wrote half a book, oh. <laughs> which was oh. much more reasonable. Then again, we had to do a lot of coordination, and you know edit each other and so forth. But it was great to have a collaborator. What, what, my co-author is um, Deb Wenger, who teaches at University of Mississippi and who came to it from the producing side. So she was a producer and assistant news director. And I was the you know, sort of reporter writer. And we brought different skills and I think complemented each other very well.
0: So what was your thinking when you're writing a book? I mean, you, it was funny that you said it was the longest thing I ever did. And it was the same thing. My same um, impression of when I when I wrote my book, it was just like, this is the longest thing I've ever done. I think, you know, at the very beginning, it was like, I think I can do this. This is just a long distance run of something I do all the time. What was your approach? What What do you remember about doing that?
1: It's like any kind of writing. That's the, that's what I do remember is it's if you follow the same process that you would follow for any news story, it's the same, right? It's about figuring out the structure, you know, what's your focus for each individual chapter going to be? How do these pieces fit together? You know, what points do you want to make? How can you illustrate those points? with graphics or with other elements that you're going to use. It's very similar to telling a story, it's just a lot longer.
0: Yeah, and that was actually the the pleasant thing about the book that I wrote was that you know, I'm somebody who who has dealt with anxiety in my life. And so for me when before the process started I, I was like, oh, you know, what you know, am I going to get into these situations where I'm going to be really, you know, drive myself crazy over a particular point or something, but it's funny, the whole process of actually pitching the book, you know, somebody asked me to write the book and, um, structuring it, setting the structure up ahead of time. As soon as I entered the writing process, the structure was everything. Yeah. It was just go step by step by step. And then as soon as, and as soon as that happened, it was like, oh, okay, I can do this. Exactly. I'm not going to panic. I'm just going to, you, you know, in 30 days, I'll be at this point and I'll be done. And that's what happened. It was pretty amazing. But anyway, yeah. So I mean, I
1: think that's a lesson that works. You know, if you're writing a 40-second voiceover, it's the same thing, right? It's what's the structure of this story? Where's the what's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? What's the as I said, what's the focus? Which I think is the question that a lot of journalists don't ever ask. They you know they 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 walk out the door with a, an assignment, and they deliver something on the assignment, but they never find a story while they're out there. And when they deliver on the assignment, they you know they basically are. I don't want to use the word regurgitating but they're not they're not telling a story in any particular way it's like a it's three facts strung together you know yeah and we're going to call that a, a story and it is it's a news report but it's not a story
0: yeah you yeah, know no i see that i deal with that all the time and in, in the type of reporting we do here in this building at the end of the day, you have to turn in something. You go to a meeting, you cover the meeting, you come back. What was said at the meeting? What was the most important thing? What's the thing that your audience is going to be most interested in? Put all that in the, into your structure, and boom, 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 you're you're done. You know, sometimes it gets it's kind of you get kind of despairing that this is all I am doing. I'm not, you know, telling these greater stories or, or stories that maybe get people to think. You're just being a sort of a tape recorder in many ways.
1: Yeah, it's hard given the format. It really is. But I think even working within it, you can do good storytelling. I once did a conference where I invited Robert Kralwich to speak, great radio guy. And Robert said, look, when he worked went from NPR to ABC News, right, so suddenly his time had <laughs> shrunk dramatically. And he said, it doesn't do us any good to, you know, beat ourselves, uh, you know, on the chest and say, oh, woe is me. You know, I, I can't write the, aim of, the rhyme of the ancient mariner anymore. And he said, because what, what I'm doing now is haiku. And I thought, that what a brilliant way of thinking about it. You know, we're still telling, we hope, great stories. We just only have a, a few words to do it in. And you can't say that haiku isn't great poetry, right? So it's just a matter of the discipline, finding your focus, narrowing it down, and then telling the story within the parameters you have.
0: What's funny is that my wife, she's a federal contractor. She works with the federal government. And she used to, um, one of the things she had to do, she had to edit down other people's reports. And if you've ever covered an agency, the writing there by and large is really awful because people never taught, you know, them. And this happens a lot of, a lot of uh, writing in different, in sort of areas. They never, never tell anybody how to organize their thoughts to tell it in every plain way. And she she would like read these paragraphs and it's like, well, how do I, you know, how do I structure this? What do I do? And I was like, well, what do you want to say? Mm -hmm. And then she says, well, I wanted to say blah, 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 X. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, just write that down. <laughs> because you just all you did was identified what the important point is and write that down and you know it's, it's so funny sometimes how 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 you can take writing and storytelling down to such a basic level you talked about the haiku and just realizing at the end that really all you want to do is you want to communicate an idea mm-hmm. and elicit a response from your reader and certainly from uh, from from the journalist standpoint a lot of it, the answers to that is what's the most efficient way to do it mm-hmm. and it is quite quite short especially if if like you're in the broadcast arena where you have you have to you know it's a, it's a two-minute report and you got to be out. Exactly. It's yeah. a zero-sum
1: game. It's not like the web. <laughs> and I thank God for the web. I mean, I think what a great opportunity we have to to tell more about a story, to tell a story differently online than we can in, you know, 40 seconds or whatever we get.
0: This goes back to what we were talking about before, the idea of that the web would be an archive. In some ways it is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the most effective thing. It shouldn't just be a dumping ground. In actuality, a lot of the, the better... Writing is stuff that is done with a lot of the same sort of thinking of of news writing. Tell it efficiently, tell it, you know, understanding that you're on a different platform and that people are are most likely only looking at it for for 20 seconds at a pop and figuring out a way to do it and then encouraging them to read those longer stories.
1: Exactly. And doing those longer stories in an engaging way, right? Yeah. So longer doesn't mean just more of the same. (laughs) No, it, it it should bring in all kinds of other elements. You can, you can use video, you can use audio, you can use you know photos, you can use photo galleries. there are just tons of things that you can do to tell a story in an engaging way online that you know just to use radio as and as an example, we don't have we have sound and we have sound and that's pretty much what we have sound and even that, you know we don't use sound to its best advantage in, in most radio today. No. um you know even NPR, I just have you ever heard the Ira Glass critique of yeah. NPR <laughs> every story begins with, street sound.
0: (laughs) Anyway, we're on a podcast and, you know, I wrote a book about podcasting Mm -hmm. and I mean, that's sort of, it's the same sort of deal that you're opening up a different sort of Realm of possibilities, but that being said, I, I think there's a lot of things that just are not being done in podcasting right now.
1: Well, I want to start by asking you a question about podcasting itself. Why do you think it's popular again? At one point, it was dead.
0: No, it was not.
1: <laughs> it if you read my dead. book,
0: it, if you read my book, it appeared to be dead. No, actually, if you look at the numbers, actually, podcasting was on a steady growth. The arc was continuing. What had changed was the attention with which people, in particular the news, was giving to podcasting. And it took Serial to open up people's eyes. It, and so the hook to the story was, oh, look, Serial is, has, has resurrected podcasting. Well, there were, you know, what about these thousands of, of other podcasters that were out there who were in that time finding new ways to tell stories and some coming up with business models that allowed them to sort of thrive in that space that aren't telling serial type stories i feel the problem (laughs) i admire serial for what it did and i'm grateful for the fact that it has brought attention back to to podcasting but the fact is is podcasting was doing just fine on its own own before serial came along and now whether you know podcasting would have gotten this great popular sort of resurgence in, in people's consciousness probably wouldn't have occurred without it. It may have been something else that had done it. But I think Serial, C- you got to remember, it had a great platform to jump off of. You know, it came from public media. It had an audience already built into it. It already had a huge bullhorn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to, to come up with the impression that, you know, it came out of nowhere. Well, no, it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of public media. It already had a built-in audience. And then journalists do what journalists always do. They they see a story And then they make it seem like it's something that it's not, that it's something huge and and greater than it is. But in actuality, it was just a really good podcast rolled out in a way you would roll out a good, good podcast. And it got a big audience and that's great. It created a buzz for itself. It created a buzz for podcasting, but there are plenty of other podcasts that are out there that are doing just as well, if not better. And in actuality, the, the podcasts that come out of public media which a lot, a lot of journalists pay attention to actually are only a, a small fraction of the number of podcasts that are being produced across the country and there are all types of different podcasts that are being done. And so to look at Serial and say that this is the way podcasting should be is is kind of well that's sort of short-sighted. There are all types of different types of shows or there entertainment, there're business, there's marketing, it, you asked me, I think, why is why are they popular? They've always been popular, and and they're popular because they take advantage of what audio storytelling has always done, which is make a personal connection with the audience, and that's appealing to people who are looking for genuine content that they can consume. And there's a lot of you know something that was that I talk about in the book, but you know everybody I talked to for the book, they said. It was the authenticity, and it was the passion, the, the passion behind the creator, behind whatever subject they were talking about. Those are the things that people connected with. And the fact that podcasts are so personal that they're, the, they're your companion in the car, they're, they're with you when you're walking your dog, when you're cleaning your house, when you're at the gym, People respond to that on a very intellectual level. And then the other side of it is, and this is really kind of important and what makes it different than television and radio, is like the DVR had sort of freed up video for people to, you know, program it and choose their content and view it when they want to. Podcasting allows the same sort of thing. You can find micro content that's targeted specifically to your interests and then you can listen to it whenever you want to. You can turn it off, you can come back on, that's the strengths of podcasting, and I think that's why it's, it's around and, and and people like it so much.
1: That's one difference with with radio. Would you say there's any other difference in terms of how it's delivered? Is delivery of a podcast different from a radio program? Well, I mean,
0: it, this is this is a you know at the core debate about what a podcast is. It's it's digital audio that you get online, and certainly there are radio stations that put their content online that live stream. You know, there's satellite radio, which you have, have a special sort of receiver where you, where you can get it. I guess at the core, it's different in that you can, you can download it, but you could also play it online. It tends to be much more portable. People can listen to it on its phone. And actually, it was the, uh, the phone, it was the iPhone that really kind of launched podcasting sort of popular growth. Is that, you know, the ease with which people are able to download the content and they have a player in their pocket because they have their cell phone. Whether it's an iPhone or whether it's an Android device, you, you have a, a media player on there that you can download a podcast to. So, you know, and then that brings into the whole aspect of how you market it and how you find it. And those are difficult questions sometimes.
1: I guess what I meant by delivery is if you're the podcast host, are you different on your podcast than you would be on a radio program?
0: <laughs> well, I, I'm not a radio broadcaster, so I couldn't answer that. Um, Is but, a host different? Than... Well, no. I mean, there there are plenty of successful podcasts out there. Certainly, you know, in public media, that are just you know recycled episodes. They're appealing to their audience in in a different way. They're they're trying to convince their audience to download their podcasts of their favorite radio shows to listen wherever whenever they want. And so that for me as a digital journalist sort of speaks to the whole idea. Of you know, the accessibility of digital content that you can get it any time that you want, and that you're in control of what you're reading and what you're what you're listening to. And so, I think podcasting fits in that space better than a lot of uh, a lot of radio and television. Well, I have a theory that
1: that a podcast is less formal. And... Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Right. Yeah. So when I say delivery, I mean in terms of how you sound that it's less formal and a little bit more intimate.
0: Yeah. The intimacy goes back to what I was saying before about the fact that it's, it's your companion in the car. But in the book, I talked to lots of different people and I wanted to make sure that I, I didn't talk to just public radio people because that did only represents a part of it. But you, you need to talk to public radio people because they, they know how to tell stories well. They know about production values and producing content that has rich sound and it is a is an aural experience, something that you, you can listen to. That being said, I think part of the appeal as you sort of alluded to is the informality of a podcast that the fact that the hosts, you know, this is like the DIY <laughs> sort of punk attitude of, I don't need no big radio network to tell me how to, how to talk to people and how to, you know, talk about the subject that I particularly want to talk about. There's nothing between me and my microphone. There's nothing between me and my audience except my microphone. So I can do and say whatever I want I can sort of build whatever agenda I want and find whatever audience I want. I don't need to have to cycle it through, you know, a radio station or a network or an editor. You know, I'm in control of my content. And so it can be very personal. Does it have more in common with talk radio than radio news? I don't know. I think it probably, yes, is more akin to talk radio and sort of the informality of that. And that a lot of the podcasts that you listen to are conversationally driven. That being said, I think we're going to start to see another, you know, second a third or fourth generation type of podcasting where we're going to see a lot more sound design, things that you would see in, you know, old radio dramas or in public media where, where people are incorporating more music. And, and it's less about me turning on the microphone and me talking to my friend about, you know, comic books or whatever in our garage that, you know, maybe I'm doing storytelling and I'm incorporating, you know, natural sound and music to sort of break up the interludes. So I think there's a lot of that that's happening in the the space.
1: If you had to name one podcast that you think is sort of blazing the trail for this new generation, what would it be?
0: Oh Geez, I don't know. I listen to such crappy podcasts for the most part. I wish I could say I could, you know, I listen to all of the intellectual ones that that you're supposed to, but I don't. I listen to what interests me, what appeal to my particular interests. I listen to like pop culture podcasts. I listen to history podcasts, some news podcasts. You said earlier that
1: while everyone, well many people thought podcasting was not, you know, still out there and doing well, they were all misled. We were all confused. That some of them, at least at least some of them, were doing very well as, as business models, that yeah. they, people were making money at it. Yeah. Do you address this in your book? And if so, yes. what's your advice to beginning podcasters who would like to make a little living
0: at it? Well, don't expect to make any money on it is the main thing. I, I think the the big lesson that I would, I would put out there and that I've talked to uh, that I address in the book is there are people who make a lot of money on it, but a lot of the people who make money on it, they make it because they already have a built-in audience. Somebody like Adam Carolla, who had a radio show, had a large radio audience. He migrated over to podcasting. He was able to bring that audience with him. And podcasting allowed him to do his show in in a different sort of way, where he was having a direct conversation with his audience. And so in that way, he was able to market to them. You know, maybe they get subscriptions, maybe they get you know, uh, he has merchandise, or I know that he's produced some films. He also does um, books and live appearances. So the, the podcast then becomes not so much of a, a moneymaker in itself, it becomes a, a marketing platform. And actually, you'll see a lot of people who are successful in podcasting, the podcast itself is not the moneymaker. It's, it's the thing that draws people's attention to your expertise and the things that you, you know, that you want to put out there there are plenty of people like that. I talked to John Lee Dumas, who does the Entrepreneur on Fire podcast. He does like maybe a 10 minute podcast a day where he interviews an entrepreneur and he's turned this into a huge business. And what's great about him, and if you're writing about podcasts in general, I, I would encourage you to go to the EO Fire podcast site is he puts all of his business records on his website. So you can see the track of his money he's made o- over the period of of years and you know he said that for the first 6 months he he made nothing but eventually he got the attention of somebody who said hey i think you've got an interesting idea why don't you become part of this and that led to other things and so you know he's grown that into a business where he, you know, he does classes he sells books He talks to other marketers. He does presentations. So, you know, there are ways around it to make money. You know, just you going into your garage with your friend to talk about whatever, chances are you're not going to make a ton of money on that. You do it for love. You do it for love. No, but see, that's the thing, you know, that I said before. The big word that comes from everybody that I spoke to for the book, I spoke to about 60 different podcasters, was passion. The word they said was passion. One word that they all said that you have to have a passion for podcasting, whatever you're talking about. Because again, this goes back to what you were saying. That's what people connect with, is whatever your passion is. I'm passionate about cupcakes. So I'll do a cupcake podcast. You'll get an audience who who connect with you and understand who you are. Because this medium, this microphone is is so great about, you know, that's the great thing about it is you can hear the person think. You can hear their process and you can identify with them. And you can cue in very easily to their passion and connect with it. And that's why it's so personal. So people recognize things that are inauthentic and they shy away from them. But if they, if, you know, you can be so sloppy in your production, provided your, your, your sound quality is, is not painful to people's ears. If you have a message that that's out there, if you have something that people connect with, then they will, they will be your fans and they will listen to you. That doesn't mean you, you shouldn't pay attention to sound production. <laughs> you should. You know, that's the great thing about podcasting, is is that the barrier for entry technically is so low that anybody could do a podcast. But the the thing is, you need to make sure you master those basic skills so that they do not become a distraction from what you what you really should be concentrating on, which is what your passion is, what's your message, what's the structure. I mean you know, there are all other types of things you need to consider about, you know, how long is your podcast going to be? You know, where are you going to put it online? How are you going to promote it? You know, all those things, you know, who you're going to talk to if, if you're going to talk to experts, all those things are more important necessarily in many cases than, than the technical aspect of, of it. But the, the technical aspect that has to be addressed early on so that, so that it doesn't interfere with your ability to grow your podcast.
1: Right. And do you have advice for people who'd like to start out? Is there a starter kit?
0: Well, there's my book. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Now, buy now, your book. <laughs> buy my book.
0: No, 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 no. That's not what that's not what I'm about. That's not why I wrote it. The advice I would give is well here here's the here's the advice that, that I that I tell very very early on in the book that I've told people whenever I go to a conference and talk about it, and that is expect your audience to be much smaller than you imagine. Okay. The impression is if you look at cereal, if you look at all these, you know, out of control, out, and all these other people, even some guy who, who talks about old books that you listen to his podcast and he has a big audience, you know, the impression is that you're going to go in, you're going to have 10,000 people listening to, and you're going to be able to sell commercials and make money off it. That's not going to be the case. Podcasting is niche or niche, however you want to say it in the most, you know, good podcasts <laughs> focus on one topic And they focus on one topic really well. And what that means is is when you choose your topic, you're basically limiting the size of your audience because there are only a certain number of people who are going to be interested in that one thing that you're interested in to the degree that you are. That being said, sometimes you can you can have some crazy podcast idea and it's appealing to a lot of different people because your passion is so great that it doesn't necessarily matter what your subject is. That being said more often than not, you're going to have a small audience, but that doesn't mean it's a, it's a bad thing. Even from a marketing standpoint or a a revenue stream standpoint, that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, if you have a golf podcast, you know, maybe you can, you know, get a deal with a a golf supply, golf equipment supply company that'll, that'll do promotions on your podcast. We'll give you this amount of money to say our, our company's name or, you know, promote our ball or our clubs or whatever. So there are ways to sort of turn that into revenue. But, you know, again, that should never be your number one thing. And because if it is, then that's a, diff- a different type of podcast. And you need to have a, you have a completely different approach. That comes into the, are you Katie Couric? Are you, are you a wrestler? Do you have 100,000 Twitter followers? Hmm. Then that, that becomes, if you do have 100,000 Twitter followers, then yes, you should have a podcast. Not just to make money off of them, but as a marketing ploy. Because you want to set it up as a, you know, this is my platform for me to talk about my wrestling career or whatever. But for the the person who's just starting out in a podcast, find something that you're passionate in about. Figure out, you know, the technical end of it. You know, what tools you need to have in order to get your podcast online. You know, that's a website. That's a microphone. That's some sort of recorder. It can be your iPhone. It could be a digital recorder. It could be your laptop. You could be recording on GarageBand. On your laptop, and then edit that audio, and load it up onto an audio server like uh, SoundCloud, and um, then you've got a player, and you've got an audio file. You send it to iTunes. You promote it out on on Twitter and Facebook, and that's how you grow, and that's how you start. Easy peasy. How easy,
1: how easy could that be?
0: It's up? no, it's it's <laughs> sick how easy it is. That being said, it's hard too. It's really hard to come up with content that that's going to go on for a long time. Would you
1: advise people to make a commitment if you're really going to do this? Yes. Establish a time that you're going to do it every week or at least. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. definitely a regular podcast is, I think it's crucial to success. You can't just do it whenever you want to because part of growing a podcast is establishing a rhythm, establishing a routine where people are going to come and to check out your content. You know, there are successful podcasts that that are out there that are only once a month or maybe even longer. One of my favorite podcasts is Dan Carlin's hardcore history. And it takes him about four or five months to do an episode. But that when that episode comes out, it's four hours long and it's, it is wonderful, but you know, it's like somebody leaving a a piece of chocolate in your, in your mailbox every four months. It's it's like, Oh, this is this wonderful thing I get to enjoy, but then I'm going to have to wait until the next piece comes. And that, you know, that's the case. But those are, those are rare. Do a podcast, you know, do a 10 minute podcast every, every week and see how that goes. One of the people I spoke to was the, um, one of the company officials at Libsyn, which is one of the podcast servers. And he had looked at audience numbers and looked at the, you know, size of the audiences. And after the first six months, the average podcast had 150 downloads per episode for over a period of month. So if you post a podcast on, you know, January 1st, January 31st, you'll have had 150 downloads. And, uh, that's the average. And that's the average because there are thousands and thousands of different podcasts. So you're going to ask yourself, you know, if I'm doing this for six months and I only have 150 people listening to me, is that what you want? Is that okay? I mean, that was never a concern with me. That wasn't what I was, I was going out for because I felt it was important sort of what I was doing with, with my podcast. Audience size was kind of secondary. If I was really concerned about it, I would have marketed it in a completely different way. I would have had a marketing plan to start with and blah, 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 blah. But the other thing that he said was most people bail out after about the sixth episode because they run out of ideas. Nobody's listening to them. Nobody's downloading their podcast they move on to other things. But if you get past that six episodes, you get past the six months and just stick with it and find that there are rewards beyond just downloads. There are certainly rewards beyond being able to make money out of this. For me, for example, I got a book deal. I had no expectation of having a book deal out of this, but because I had a podcast and I had done it for a period of years and I started writing on my blog that goes with the podcast is saying, Oh, maybe I've learned some things about being a podcaster. Maybe I should share those people would find them interesting. And because of that, I was able to get a book deal. I've been able to speak at conferences. I've been able to go, I've traveled all over the country to talk to people about podcasting because my podcast is about journalism. I talk every week to somebody in journalism who is incredibly smart about what's going on in our industry. That knowledge I'm able to apply every day to my job here. So it is, it has benefited me professionally. I can turn around to my boss and say, I heard about this really neat idea. Let's try this. Let's do this. My whole outlook on data analytics came out of my podcast and how we use data analytics here. A lot of the decisions that are made here are informed because of conversations I've had with very intelligent people about journalism. So, you know, go out and do these things with no expectation Except that it's it's a passion that you want to do and you want to make a connection with somebody and just be open for opportunities.
1: If you don't have a radio studio at your disposal, as you do, <laughs> um,
0: yeah, the, I, I really, really lucked out. <laughs> you're in the right place. I'm in the right place. but how would you do how would you advise
1: people to do these interviews that you're suggesting would be a good way to populate their podcast?
0: Well, I mean, you, there are certain challenges that you face. There are many advantages to working at a radio station. I've got this wonderful board. I've got these microphones, these headphones, these things that I didn't have to pay for. That being said, if you're just recording a podcast with you and one other person, you know, it's like I was saying before, you could record it on your iPhone. You could record it on a digital recorder. You could record it on on your laptop. Using it says if the person's there, right? If, if the, the person's, person's there. Present.
1: So how do you bring in somebody?
0: Uh, well, that, that's where it becomes, where it <laughs> becomes tricky. <laughs> you can do the interviews over Skype. You can do them via conference call. Uh, if you get a mixer, there's an, an attachment that you can you can put into your mixer that you can plug a phone line in. And so then it routes the phone line through your mixer. And then you can, you can record the uh, audio on a separate track. That's if you happen to have a landline. That's, that's <laughs> have, see, that's the other thing, a lot of people don't. Now there are, also, yeah. there are also programs, well there's Zencaster. What that does is you can, it records the audio. It records both ends of the conversation. And then once the conversation is over, it puts the, um, it puts the two audio files into a folder. Online that you can download, and then you can mix them together on your on your laptop in an audio editing program. And there are a couple of other uh, programs that can do that as well.
1: And if you're a beginner at audio editing, do you recommend Audacity or something like that?
0: Audacity because it's free and it's pretty you know down and dirty, very easy to to do. And, And really, it's it's a lot of it's basically what you need to do. And what I would say is to start simply. You know, start your podcast, not by trying to set up a phone call with somebody famous at the other end, start your podcast with interviewing a couple of people across the table, get used to your microphones, get used to your audio setup and your recording, figure out how to, um, edit your audio and posting it online, you know, get all those things figured out before you start. It's all baby steps. One thing I will say about sort of audio quality, one of the uh, people I spoke to for the book came out of public media is a producer of a a rather large podcast. that is a really, we're talking hundreds of thousands of listeners. And she has had people in public media saying, oh, the sound quality on your podcast is so awful. You know, when are you going to fix that? And she's like, the only people who care about that are are these people in public media. Because all they're, they're trying to think of is, oh, it's not radio quality. It's not broadcast quality. It doesn't need to be broadcast quality. It's great if it is. Another thing, people like structure. You know, if you're just going to wander around going back and forth. My podcast probably seem a little unstructured and, and quite often they are. But unlike this podcast you and I are having, most, <laughs> most of the time I hand out questions ahead of time.
1: I was going to ask you that about whether I, I was I'm assuming most podcasts are not scripted the way a radio no. program would be, but outlined, prepared. In yeah. Some
0: way. And it's funny because, you know, that's that's like talking about like religion with people with podcasters, everybody has their own, their own take on religion. It's like, no, we never, we never give questions. We, we don't. Oh, I would never give anybody an outline because it's supposed to be conversational and the whole idea is conversation. Or, oh my God, no, we have to give a structure so that the podcast answers the questions we want answered, but then also makes it easier for them to produce. You'll find that actually the ones that or more professional or sort of more have to hit certain marks, the more structure there is in it, the more structure and pre-production there is. So you should think about who you're, what you're going to ask your guest ahead of time. Actually, when I send out questions to people, are those questions are really for me more ahead of time to sort of structure the conversation in my head. So that I know, okay, this is what this person is going going to talk about. This is, these are the points that I want to bring out of it. Quite often, I don't use any of the questions that I send to the the person, but it also, it it gives them a sense of organizing themselves. It wasn't actually, because I I don't come from a radio background. It wasn't until I came in this building and they had a morning radio show, news show, where they actually sent all the questions out to all of the guests. They pretty much stuck to the questions, I would say 98% of the time. You know, circling back to your question about how long should a podcast be? I mean, I have people talk about that they they only do podcasts that are about an hour long. The problem is, I um, went to Podcast Movement and there was a uh, the NPR One data guy whose name escapes me at the moment done a presentation. And the great thing about NPR One is that's that's the app that NPR puts out its uh, all of its audio content on. So they're able, because they control that, they own that, they can look at all the data analytics from that and then make some decisions. And they, they learned some very important things. One of which there's a big drop off after two minutes that if you don't hook your people in two minutes, they're gone. So, okay, well, what if your podcast is this wonderful dinner conversation that wanders and goes back and back and forth? If you don't give them a person a reason in the first couple of minutes to listen to you they're going to be gone. They're not going to hear that wonderful conversation. You know, maybe what you want to do is you take that really gripping thing and you put it at the front and to hook them. I mean, so that's what, one of the reasons why I started with my podcast. I always start with an audio clip. This is what we're going to be talking about. This is what this person sounds like. That I think is a is a way to hook people. It's not always the best way, but it's, it's something to consider is that you're you're fighting for people's time and attention That's the way of uh, media today I mean everybody's fighting for attention yeah all the network TV stations, all the cable stations, all the digital content that you can you can get you're fighting for people's time yeah. and if you can and people have very short I can, I can show you the analytics from from our articles on our website people don't spend a lot of time on things. They move from one thing to another very quickly so unless you give them something and get you know engaging, you know, granted, if they're a podcast fan, they kind of understand the nature of podcasts that you're going to, they're going to be listening. It's secondary. It's not a primer. It's not like you're sitting in front of the TV watching something. or You have a book in front of you that you have to read. You know, the podcast is your background thing. So they need to have a sense that, that if they listen to it as they're driving or if it's in the background, that they're going to get something out of it. It doesn't need a hundred percent of their attention, but enough to engage them. Absolutely.
1: Otherwise it's just noise.
0: Exactly. That's fascinating. What's the title of the book? Turn Up the Volume, A Down and Dirty Guide to Launching a Podcast. Great. And it comes out when? It comes out in June. It's a textbook, which surprises me to no end. <laughs> well, it's just, that's... we'll see. Let me ask you a couple of uh, journalism, questions. journalism questions. What are you concerned about right now with journalism?
1: Oh Well, I think we're living in a sort of new world that many of us were not prepared for, but we're also dealing with Something that's been an issue for journalism for a very long time, and that's a lack of trust. I think it's the most important thing for journalists to try to figure out how to regain the public's trust. We could be doing all the great journalism in the world, and if nobody believes it, what's the point? I actually went back and reread a speech that I gave a dozen years ago in which I talked about this very issue. And at that point, you know, the Gallup poll that comes out every year and talks about how many people what percentage of people, you know, believe what they hear in the news media was at a, you know, an all-time low. Well, it's an all-time lower now, considerably lower. And so, you know, it's not just that we have a president who denounces the news media and calls the news media the enemy of the American people and talks about everything being fake. That's not what's really at issue. What's really at issue is this has been going on for a long, long time. And journalists, you know, have always said, well, it's we let the work speak for itself. You know, it's, it's all about doing great work and doing good journalism, and that'll bring people back. Well, it won't. It just won't. And so, uh, you know, my feeling is that we really need to figure out ways to rebuild that trust, and I think it has to happen one journalist at a time. It's almost like the phenomenon we have with the Congress, where people say Congress is terrible and they're all awful, except, of course, my congressman. So we need to become my journalist in some ways. You know, we need to be actual people that people can relate to. Maybe that's one thing podcasting is good for is if it's intimate and personal, it gives people a chance to actually have a build a kind of a relationship with an individual journalist and not with the media. I think it's a signal problem. And again, I don't think it's new.
0: I think um, things were easier for us when we we were able to tell everybody what was important and what we thought that we thought we controlled the news mm. that the, they were going to sit down and we were going to tell them what the news is. we don't own the news the news just happens we just report it and if they don't like the way we report it they're going to go down the street and, and get it from somebody else and because in a lot of situations there was no competition you know we pretty much got spoiled this idea that we also had a terrible attitude toward the audience. Oh, my terrible God, attitude, yeah. Right? Oh, my God.
1: You know, somebody used to say- Where are you going to go? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You call up the newsroom and the answer is, news, hold. You know, there's just no relationship building whatsoever between between journalists and the audience. And that's at least changing somewhat.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a lot of the key, I think, to our success. And, and maybe a lot of the reason why we're in the way we are, this, this old attitude of- I think that a lot of people are still in the broadcast act aspect. I don't mean broadcast journalism, but just we're broadcasting the news. We're not we're not involved in a conversation with our audience. I'm not necessarily a, a huge I don't know something we've talked about on and off over the podcast over since the election. This whole idea of fake news that's a very convenient thing for the for the press. I think to hang this on this idea that you know people can't get you know they're getting all this fake news. I think I think actually it is more it's more it's more to do with our listening problem. And not recognizing that there are stories out there that we're not covering, not just the disgruntled, you know, white voters in the middle of America, but just who our newsrooms reflect, who make up our our newsroom, the diversity in our newsroom, the diversity of the stories that we're reporting. All this stuff, I mean, that's what's that's missing. That part of the reason why people don't trust us is because we're so busy with whatever we think the message is trying to tell people, not understanding that we need to be listening to them and and reporting their story and involve them in our process. I don't think there's enough of that going
1: on. Well, I agree with you, in particular, this question of the process. Like, how transparent are we about how we do what we do? I think we have to be. We have to make it very clear, you know, how we get information. Obviously, the whole issue of confidential sources is not new. You know, it's always been an issue, particularly in this town, where, you know, people will brief you on, you know, background about something that there's absolutely no reason to go in background about whatsoever. But that's what they insist on because that makes them seem more important to themselves, I think, partly. There's a very famous story of uh, the news media got really sick. Journalists got sick of it when Kissinger was secretary of state. So we're talking a long time ago. And and, uh, I think one AP reporter finally put out a story that said, you know an official traveling on the secretary's plane wearing the secretary's suit you know it was like he just it was it was clear it, who was doing the briefing try, you know? trying to
0: nuts. get any, trying, trying to get anybody to speak on the record is is insane in this this town the the, the public information officer is the exact opposite of that disinformation or just I'll, I'll get back to you and you never hear from them and this is not a Trump thing I mean you know the Obama White exactly House was right. incredibly controlling of the news they were you couldn't get anybody to speak on the record about anything of any substance and then they would turn around and they would say well why didn't you write anything good about us and they're like well why don't you tell us anything and then maybe we can make a decision to whether that's good. I mean, but that's, you know, that's just journalists being journalists. I've been watching these things over the last couple of weeks in the news. And and, and I've been thinking about, I've said this all along while I was a journalist, is that, you know, people think of us way down here and just below us are politicians. And so that's the only thing that we've got going. People have never liked journalists it's just now it's just a bigger thing and yeah and... but you
1: know what we didn't get into this business to be liked oh no and that's fine yeah. but respected and trusted is critical and yeah. if, so you know if they say we don't like you that's you know i understand we we right. tell them things that they don't want to hear you know it's it's not a pleasant job to to report on things that are unpleasant right and it, but it's important but the never before have i felt this sense that really that It's a majority of people who don't trust what they hear anymore.
0: Yeah. And there are a lot of things that are are involved with it. We had somebody who was talking about what do you do if you've got like ads and other types of things on your website that cycle through these, you know, These clickbaity type headlines, they're not part of your news, but they're on your website. Mm -hmm. So how can somebody differentiate between what is news and what is was clickbaity, you know, unsubstantiated headlines? I mean, I think the the New York Times got gigged on that because they had something on their website that was clearly not news. It wasn't from And it wasn't
1: theirs either. It wasn't
0: theirs either. But but the fact is is, you know, when people come to your website, who knows what they think is, is you and what's somebody else? How can they value what's, what's...
1: Well, then it's up to us to make that clear. That's what I'm saying. That's what transparency is all about. It's saying, yeah. you, know, you know what this is? This isn't us. This is something else. They're paying some of our bills, but this isn't us. Right. And we have to be clear about that. And the idea that, you know, sort of integrated content is, you know, the solution <laughs> and we everything's sort of going to look the same and no one will ever tell and therefore we can make lots of money off of it. I mean, come on. It's sort of like the idea of the podcast as being, you know, the place where you're going to make lots of money. It's like, no, no you, you know, you you need to just be clear about that. What is your content? And, you know, advertorials and all this stuff online, you know, don't get me started. That's part of what's sort of polluted the public mind is that we have allowed ourselves, you know, to fall prey to this. Well, we have to, we have to make a living somehow, you know, we need a business model. Well, we'll just take all this stuff and stick it on the website and that'll be fine. No, it isn't because guess what? it starts to get conflated.
0: This thing that, that you and I met at, um, I was talking to a political editor and I asked him, well, what do you think about what's going on in this whole situation? What does it mean for journalism and everything? And he was sort of like, well, that's four four years of, uh, of a revenue stream for us. That we're going to be writing about this and people are going to be coming to our website because they want to read these stories. And then for eight years, then we'll have to find something else. And I was like, wow, I, I didn't ever, th- I'm not even that cynical. But, uh, oh my God. Oh, well. I'm sure we'll come up with something. Deborah, this has been great. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Next time on It's All Journalism. To me, you just you don't stop at the first idea.
1: You never do. You always go to that second, third, fourth, fifth idea, and then you take a step back and see how you can improve any of them. So, you know, like today I had a cartoon on the loyalty pledge supposedly Trump had asked Comey for, and I'm happy that I did not actually put his face or his name in the cartoon at all. It was the Oval Office and the desk, and I had a throne in the background. But you, everyone knows, you know, who I'm commenting on. So, you know, that's kind of how I handle the, the
0: creative challenges. I always try to be a little different. In our next podcast, we talk to Adam Ziglis, Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist for The Buffalo News. Adam shares how he finds a fresh approach to covering our current rocky political climate. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, A Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you a cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at wtop.com. Search Podcast DC. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA.
1: The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast
0: One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.